Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. I have my list and my red pen ready because today we are discussing Star Trek. This is the Starship Enterprise. Set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. They're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. So today's films are Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III The Search for Spock, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, Star Trek Generations, Star Trek First Contact, Star Trek Insurrection, Star Trek Nemesis, The 2009 Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, Star Trek Beyond, and Galaxy Quest. If you're wondering why Galaxy Quest is included, it's because it it basically is a Star Trek film, but with comedy. It's clearly spoofing that whole series and, and the personalities involved, and I feel like it's fair to include on this list. As far as my personal experience with Star Trek, I have to admit I'm a Star Trek fan. I always have been. A lot of times people will put Star Wars or Star Trek fandoms at odds with each other. That's if you can't be both. I'm a fan of both. But if you made me choose, I would have to choose Star Trek. And Star Wars, we'll get to those when we get to them, I promise. But I do like those films. But Star Trek, I think because it has the backing of hundreds and hundreds of hours of the television shows as well, it's able to sell that universe, I think, in a more connective way. And also, too, Star Trek, at least initially, was about hope and exploration and adventure. It was about a society where they don't have racism. They don't have money. It's all about the betterment of the species. And anytime they came across a conflict, it was by a species that was not part of the Federation or was not part of that mindset. I just like the sense of hope and adventure. My connection to Star Trek reaches pretty much across my entire life. I've been a a fan since I was a kid. I used to watch the original series in syndication with my dad. I've been a Star Trek fan my entire life. I loved the Deep Space Nine series, but after that, I didn't really put much effort into watching the other series, and so I only saw very little bit of Star Trek Voyager or Enterprise. I, I don't dislike them. Those series were just never really part of my life. They didn't really enter the the pop culture of my mind, and I've never gone back. I've never gone back. Voyager has been in my streaming queues for quite a long time, and I've just never gotten around to watching it. And I'm not opposed. It just just hasn't happened. I don't know. I'm definitely not a fan of of, of current Star Trek. This this attempt to make it awesome and dark and gritty. So the new series like Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, just does nothing for me. And in fact, it kind of hurts my feelings a little bit. I have a, a an argument, an ongoing argument with one of my friends who is is also a very big Star Trek fan who says that, you know, I like the action. And But the thing is, 50 years of television series and films, it's never been an action franchise. It's a science fiction adventure franchise. And yes, in the movies, and we'll discuss those, things blow up, sure, there's usually some sort of climax at least, but it's not an action franchise. And so with these new television series, to me, it's just, it's not Star Trek. And the Abrams Star Trek from 2009 and its sequels, there's an argument to be made that those aren't really Star Trek either. And and we'll get to that too. But at least to me, those have their heart in the right place. And Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Discovery, to me, I've tried watching them. To me, there's just no heart there. They seem to be coming from an angry place. And I've never associated anger with Star Trek. Star Trek is about hope. And there's a reason it became popular. There's a reason why fandom has lasted for so long. And it's not because they made a dark and gritty Star Trek, you know? <laughs> and there is a reason why it's popular. It's, 
people liked it for a reason. And and to me, these these new series, there's just no reason to make them the way they are. And, and I get that they're maybe trying to expand the audience, but by doing it this way, they are losing their audience. Does anyone have, I guess it's Paramount Plus now, it used to be CBS All Access, but does anyone have that really for Star Trek? I don't know. If you look at the 2009 Star Trek, like that changed the formula and it did expand the audience. It was very successful. And of course, there are probably some Star Trek fans that were a little angry and I I definitely have my opinions, but but at least they still wanted to make a modernized Star Trek versus changing it to something else. There's some franchises like Harry Potter where the third one, Prisoner of Azkaban, is way darker. And that franchise grew up with its audience. It's not about rejecting change. It's about changing in a way that fits the property. Like look at Batman. Tim Burton's Batman was way different than any version of Batman that came before it. But that's fine. You're taking a chance. You're interpreting material in your own way. And that argument could be applied to Star Trek. But I think what these new TV series have done is really more comparable to what Batman Forever was to the Tim Burton Batman movies. Just a radical change that was not wanted. But look at what happened in Batman and Robin. You know, you know, there, there's definitely arguments to be made for for how far you want the pendulum to swing. And I don't think dark and unhappy star and murderous Star Trek is what I want. I don't want that in my Star Trek. But anyway, on to the films. Going off of IMDb, the highest rated Star Trek movie is actually the 2009 reboot, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. It has a 7.9 as of this recording. The second highest is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, with a 7.7. And that one is definitely a fan favorite, so I can understand that. The lowest rated is probably pretty obvious to anyone who's seen a Star Trek movie. It's Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which has a 5.5. I actually expected it to be lower, though, uh, when I was doing my research for this. I was expecting Star Trek V to be a whole lot lower than a 5.5, given the amount of hatred that that movie has, and that it very nearly killed the series. They pretty much only made six to make up for part five to give the cast a quality film to go out on. You might be surprised, but actually, despite how hugely popular Star Trek is and the pop culture awareness people have of Star Trek, part four, The Voyage Home, the one that most people will probably refer to as the one with the whales, that was the only Star Trek movie to make $100 million in the United States until the reboot series. So as famous as it is, none of them were hugely financially successful. They made money, of course, because they kept making them and the fandom was there, but it's not as large of a group as you might think. These movies did well enough, but that's about it. They weren't massively successful. Four is sort of the the odd one out. The next closest was First Contact. It opened with $30 million, which was massive. That was a massive success. And and it made it to about 90 or so in the United States. But still, only Star Trek for The Voyage Home made $100 million. That milestone was not reached by any of these other films until the reboot series. So for its popularity, that is pretty surprising. Kind of like Alien, the Alien franchise. They did not make a huge amount of money. They were hits, for sure. But you would think that being a hit means they made a ton of money. And they they really didn't. So speaking of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, and having a 5.5 rating... That's the first one I'm going to cross right off. It's really not good. It's the one where a guy steals a starship to try to find God. I think they made a mistake from the get-go. If you watch it, though, there's actually some pretty good interactions between the core three members, Spock, Bones, and Kirk. Those are pretty good moments, but the film is just not good. It's really not. I hate to say it, but the next one I'm going to have to eliminate is Star Trek The Motion Picture. 
a lot of people will call that one Star Trek the motionless picture because it's pretty slow. Like it's long. It's very long. They're long, drawn out, almost dialogue-free sequences. I feel like they were trying to ape 2001 A Space Odyssey. In fact, I'm pretty sure they were trying to follow that success. They saw the box office of Star Wars, but they ended up making a film more in line with 2001 without quite reaching that lofty goal, without quite reaching that level of quality that 2001 has. Like 2001 is a classic for a reason, and Star Trek The Motion Picture has a nickname that basically says it's boring, also for a reason. And there's stuff to like. I mean, it's still Star Trek. The series had been canceled for a number of years at that point. So just seeing these cast members back, I'm sure was a treat. But it's not that good. It's it's really not. And, it's, and luckily for the rest of the series, it is entirely skippable. Five is really the only one that's bad. There are things to dislike in the other ones. But I would not call part one a bad film in any way. It's slow. You might want to throw on a record or something while you watch it just to, you know, or maybe uh, uh, maybe maybe play something on your phone while it's on. Insurrection is definitely the weakest of those four Next Generation films, Star Trek Insurrection. And it plays like a big budget, long episode of the show, which is good. There's something to say about that as well. I mean, sometimes you really do just want a basically a big screen version of the show. But it's kind of dumb. It's kind of meandering. The villains are not particularly interesting. They try to give Picard a love story that feels a little weird. Not that it's unearned, but Picard is not exactly known for his romantic endeavors. Like it, They made a few mentions on the show, but I don't need a Picard romance. Maybe that's not fair, but Insurrection is definitely the weakest of those four Next Generation films. Um, but I'm going to have to cross off the fourth one as well, Nemesis. Nemesis is, is probably most famous for giving the world Tom Hardy. And you watch it now and it's like, oh my God, that's Tom Hardy. But Nemesis uh, Nemesis does this really dumb thing where they find another version of Data. They find another android and it's basically a less intelligent version named B4. They try to do this big dramatic moment where Data sacrifices himself to save Picard and he blows himself up. But then they immediately have a scene with B4, played by the same actor, singing a song that Data knew, it completely undercuts the emotional impact of Data dying because the actor is still there, basically still playing the character, and they could just bring him back in the next one playing that character if the movie had been a hit. It just completely ruins any emotional impact of Data's death. I think that was foolish and that was a huge mistake. The writers, I'm sure, were trying to give themselves a way to keep that character and actor involved, but just keep Data then. And one of the reasons Nemesis fell, too, is it opened five days before Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which completely destroyed it. Kind of along those lines with killing off a character, but not really. Uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. What I do like about Part Three is it has a very focused plot. It's right there in the title. But spending a whole movie just to undo the ending of Part Two, that was only done because the expectation was that this actor didn't want to come back. I don't really need that. But three is, three is okay. I would like to talk about the J.J. Abrams series. So J.J. Abrams directed Star Trek 2009. They definitely tried to modernize Star Trek. As a classic Trek fan, I'm actually okay with what they did. It's another timeline. Something happened early on that completely changed the course of these characters' lives, and so they're not the same versions of these characters that we know. And that change actually lives within the story of the film. And so I'm, I was actually quite okay with it. In fact, I, I will say that I love the 2009 Star Trek quite a lot. I, I think it's remarkably rewatchable. 
And there's always going to be that these are not these are not our characters. These this is not really Kirk. This is not the Kirk we know. And so like okay, well why make it at all if it's not going to be these characters? If if you're going to like why make it Kirk but not really? Like why make it Spock but not really? I don't really have that complaint with this one because it makes sense. They at least give you a reason versus just making Star Trek Discovery where they apparently have no lights on the bridge. That being said, J.J. Abrams made a huge mistake with Star Trek Into Darkness. Star Trek Into Darkness, for some reason, it has a 7.7 on on IMDb. And maybe I'm the odd one out on this, but man, that movie is a huge letdown. And then they tried to do this whole thing where they were lying to the public. Like, no, Benedict Cumberbatch, he's not playing Khan. And of course he is. They have this big dramatic reveal in the movie where he says that his name is Khan. And in theaters, it's just like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, we already knew that. You just sort of shrug. This is not a, the reveal that you think it is. And it just made the whole thing feel a little sour. I think it was a mistake trying to hide that, trying to trick people. But also, too, if you're trying to make it its own thing, why basically remake Star Trek 2? Why do Khan again? Why make your part 2 so connected to the original part 2? Because it's immediately going to cause us to make those connections in our mind. So I'm crossing off Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm also going to cross off Star Trek Beyond because <sighs> there's a scene in it where the Enterprise surfs the ship surfs on a bunch of robots in space set to the beastie boys (laughs) and i'm sorry but no no so let's go ahead and talk about galaxy quest because it's awesome galaxy quest is amazing and it's funnier if you know some of the backstory of what went on behind the scenes of star trek with william shatner rewriting other people's lines trying to take over make it about him even without knowing about Star Trek. Like, you don't even really have to be a Star Trek fan to, to like Galaxy Quest because on its own, it's just funny. Kind of like how with spoof films or parody films like The Naked Gun, Airplane, the ones that are good are the ones that stand on their own without requiring the knowledge base of whatever they're making fun of versus these terrible spoof movies like Disaster Movie, Epic Movie, Date Movie. The jokes aren't even jokes. They're just references like, hey, do you remember Hancock? Isn't that funny? Look, it's Iron Man. Isn't that funny? Like, no, there's there's no joke there. So the ones that are the best are the ones that are funny anyway. You get that little extra bit of, of recognition and enjoyment because you might understand what they're referencing, but it's not necessary. And so Galaxy Quest is, is like that. You don't even have to have watched any of the Star Trek films or television series to laugh at what's in the movie. The jokes are good on their own. Like when, when Sam Rockwell's freaking out because he thinks he's basically the nameless character that's just there to die to show how dangerous the situation is for the main cast. His stressful freakouts are hilarious, even without knowing about red shirts. And so Galaxy Quest does this fantastic job of being so truthful to Star Trek and turning those into jokes that are funny, even without you knowing that. And that's, and that's some of the brilliance of Galaxy Quest and why it's such a good movie. And a lot of people don't realize, too, that when it came out in theaters on Christmas Day, I believe... It was PG-13, and Galaxy Quest is one of the rare movies that actually came out in theaters and then on video had a different rating, and I don't just mean where they released the unrated cut, you know, just so they can slap it on a box, when in reality, the the version that went to theaters is the one you should probably stick with, because most of the time that stuff is cut for a reason, unless it's Lord of the Rings, most extended cuts are pretty much unnecessary, but Galaxy Quest is the rare example where... When it opened in theaters, it really did not do very well. 
And so they ended up cutting some profanity and you can actually see the dubbing. You can see Sigourney Weaver saying an F word and it's dubbed over and it's very obvious. And they actually did that so the home video version could be PG. And so the original theatrical cut has never been seen again. It's not available. As far as anyone's concerned, it doesn't exist. It's not even really talked about. It's just, it's one of those things that just never comes up. Two of the only other examples I can think of of a movie changing like that are the animated Transformers movie from the mid-80s. One of the characters does say the S-word in it, and they only did that so they could get a PG rating instead of a G rating, because in the 80s, G-rated movies didn't play after 6 p.m. Just by being rated G, you lose some of your box office. And so they purposefully put in some profanity in order to get a PG so Transformers could play all day. The movie bombed anyway, but the home video version had that cut. And it was cut from that movie for nearly two decades before one of the anniversary cuts actually restored the original theatrical version. Because most movies, if they change from, from theaters to video, most of the time it's just they're adding stuff. I don't think those are really worth it most of the time. The 40-year-old version was already about two hours long. And uh, as much as I like a lot of the Judd Apatow films, all of them are too long. The ones he writes, the ones he produces, the ones he directs. They're always too long. Like Bridesmaids, great film, does not need to be two hours. Knocked Up, hilarious, does not need to be two hours. The dude needs to learn how to cut his films. But then on video, the 40-year-old version is the unrated extended cut. And it adds like 15 minutes in. That movie does not need to be two hours and 15 minutes. That's crazy. Most of the time, the theatrical cut is the better version. And there are a few other examples as well of horror films in particular where because of uh, the prudish Motion Picture Association of America, they're the ones who rate movies, who give it the PG-13, PG-R, etc. They say they're not censorship, but they basically are. And so, especially in the 80s, but even all the way up through today, movies have to be edited for content because there's too many F-words and there's too much gore. But either way, there are a lot of movies that fall victim to that to where they have to cut some amazing creature and gore effects and profanity or sexual content because, again, this being America, we love our violence, but we hate sexuality. You can shoot as many people you want in a movie, but God forbid if you say a couple F-words. But a lot of horror movies, especially modern ones, are able to have that footage restored for the home video versions. So that's a slight plus. So sometimes when you see that unrated, it actually does make a difference, like Scream. The unrated version of Scream is 26 seconds longer, and it it's really is just gore shots. But not to spend too much time talking about unrated <laughs> unrated movies and marketing, but a lot of times I prefer the theatrical cut. If you go see a movie in theaters and fall in love with it, the theatrical version is the version that you fell in love with. We'll touch on it in another episode, but the Star Wars special editions, stop fiddling with the movie we love. And if you do fiddle with the movie we love, at least make the original available. But either way, Galaxy Quest. <laughs> back, back to the topic. Galaxy Quest is, is fantastic. And I'm going to tell you right now, uh, Galaxy Quest is, is absolutely going to be one of my three films. But that does mean that that's one less Star Trek movie that gets to survive these cuts. And I think the next one that we're going to have to talk about is Star Trek Generations. So when The Next Generation ended, it was exciting knowing that just that November, we we're, were going to get a big screen movie and the Kirk was going to be in it. It was exciting. It was super exciting. And my sister actually took me to see a sneak preview of it. And back then, sneak previews, they don't really exist today. Like people, I don't even know if people even really use the term sneak preview. And so for those who aren't aware, now if a movie comes out on a Friday, it actually really opens at like 6 p.m. on Thursday. Before this, we had midnight premieres. So if a movie opened on the 1st, it could start playing actually at 12.01 a.m. on the 1st. So theaters could start showtimes as early as they wanted. 
And so we had midnight screenings for many number of years before movies started coming out on Thursdays, basically. Before the midnight screenings, though, sneak previews were actually incredibly common, especially in the 90s. I saw a ton of movies through this fashion. If a movie came out on a Friday, the Saturday before, so a full six days earlier, there would be one showtime, often a double feature as well. So you usually got a free movie with it. And so if you went to go see a sneak preview of Nell with Jodie Foster, you get to stay in that auditorium and then watch Dolores Claiborne afterwards. And so this was actually pretty common. I saw sneak previews of Ed Wood, The Good Son, Dutch, The Mask. And one of those I saw was Star Trek Generations. So my sister took me to see this and it was it was an event. It was a crowd of just fans. It was a fantastic experience. Star Trek Generations is actually a great example of the impact of test screenings. A lot of studios will test their films six months to even a year before a movie opens and use that feedback to shape the film. So they'll show an unfinished version to an audience and they'll learn like, oh, we like this character, we like this joke, and so on. Because of test screenings, they actually went back and completely reshot all of the ending that involved Kirk and Picard on the planet fighting the bad guy, where Kirk ultimately dies. They reshot all of that based on test screenings. And I've actually seen a few test screenings. It's a whole lot of fun seeing an unfinished film. I've met a lot of the directors that way because usually the directors and the studio executives will be at these screenings. Uh, I've actually talked to and interacted with Ivan Reitman, the director of Ghostbusters and Kindergarten Cop, Wolfgang Peterson, who did The Perfect Storm and Troy. I saw Tony Scott, uh, the director of Top Gun. I met the director of Ghost in the Shell and Snow White and the Huntsman. So test screenings can be a lot of fun. From what I've seen, the ending is improved, but it's still not that good. Generations has its flaws. So that leaves First Contact as the only remaining Next Generation cast film. And it's a good one. It is. The Enterprise versus the Borg. It's very good. I'm not ready to cross it off. I think it's eligible. I think it could be one of the three to survive elimination. So I'm going to hang on to that one. But looking at the remaining films of the original crew, Wrath of Khan, The Voyage Home, and The Undiscovered Country. Eliminating even just one of those, much less two of those, that's a bit of a stretch. Would I pick any one of those over the other? I don't really know. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country... That was the first Star Trek film that I remember seeing in theaters. I, I, I know for sure I didn't see part five. Uh, part four was such a huge hit. I may have been taken to that as a child. I don't know. But I do remember seeing part six. I do remember seeing it and being very excited for it and loving it. And still to this day, I still really, really, really love Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. But in a discussion like this, where we have to weigh favorite versus best versus most important your favorite film may not be the best and the best film may not be the most important one like snow white which we will get to when we talk about disney films snow white and the seven dwarves is absolutely the most important disney film being the first it is definitely the most important but just that definition of being the most important doesn't make it the best and it doesn't make it anyone's favorite it still might be it could be all of those things but of the three original cast films that are left between two, four, and six, I don't think anyone's going to pick six. It's good. It's a great swan song for the cast, and it is a good film, but I don't think it's right to pick six. So this kind of goes against my own instincts because personally, between two, four, and six, I will always rewatch six. And I know Wrath of Khan has a huge amount of respect. It's often quoted as not just a great sci-fi movie, but a great action movie. Or not just a great Star Trek movie, but a great movie. The Wrath of Khan was the first film available for purchase on home video. Movies 
weren't for sale. It's not like today where a movie comes out in theaters and three months later you can walk into any store or go on Amazon and spend 20 bucks for the DVD or Blu-ray. Back then it was six months later after the theatrical release it came out home video. Six months later it would be on pay cable and then it might come out for retail purchase. But this idea of a movie just being available at a suggested retail price for any consumer to purchase, that was new. That was a new idea. And Star Trek II was the first movie to do that. So ultimately, I do have to say, I got to cross off The Undiscovered Country. It's good. I think it balances the cast really well. There's a fantastic moment in Six with Sulu. He's not in it that much, but man, when he is in it, Sulu is awesome. I'm, sh- I'm sure there are a lot of Star Trek fans that, w- that would probably scream that there's no chance <laughs> that the J.J. Abrams 2009 reboot would make it, would survive, would be one of the top three. Like, why would you ever pick that movie over any of the original Kirk films? Or why would you even choose that over First Contact? But the reality is, honestly, I think they did a really good job. I love the 2009 Star Trek. I think it's incredibly rewatchable. I'm not a huge fan of the way they cast the characters as as far as these actors being Kirk and Spock and McCoy or explaining how Bones gets his nickname. And there's a huge amount of coincidences. Kirk being exiled to the ice planet where old Spock just happens to be. But it's such an enjoyable action-adventure sci-fi movie. It's not Star Trek. It really isn't. Other than the character names, it's really not. But luckily, within the context of the film, they're able to explain it away. Why Kirk doesn't act like Kirk. So it makes sense that these are these are different people playing different versions of these characters and given a reason for that difference. That excuse goes far. That excuse actually, to me, makes it okay for it being... It's not trying to emulate the old films. It's trying to be this new lens flare heavy, action heavy, humorous adventure film. And I love it. I think it's great. I really do. It might be it might be a little blasphemous as a Star Trek fan to choose that over any of the original films at all, probably. <laughs> but that does mean that there's not room for both Wrath of Khan and The Voyage Home. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home is a movie that out of all of these, I would describe as the most crowd-pleasing. The reboot tried to be a four-quadrant film appealing to all ages and demographics, but even more so than that one, I would say part four is just a pure crowd-pleasing movie. And with a podcast like this and the concept of elimination, and you have to wonder, okay, can this film stand on its own without the others in the series? I think four stands alone. You don't have to know about the previous adventures. You don't need to know any of that. I will say that I would pick both Wrath of Khan and The Voyage Home over First Contact. I hate to say it. I hate to cross off First Contact. And this does mean that we are eliminating all of the Picard Star Trek films. I got to cross off First Contact. I hate to say it. I really do. It's effectively creepy in some parts. It gives you very satisfying moments with each of the characters, except for when Troy is pretending to be drunk. But when it comes to elimination, I, I cannot choose First Contact over The Voyage Home or Wrath of Khan. So, I got to cross off First Contact. So, with a selection of Galaxy Quest as one of my three, that does leave three films, of which I can choose two, between Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home, and the reboot. So, let's talk about Star Trek II, uh, making a sequel to one of the more popular episodes, especially after the sort of failure of Star Trek One being... Well, boring. Let's just say it. Star Trek 1 was boring. So they did a bit of a 180 to try to course correct. Wrath of Khan is about an hour and 45 minutes or so. It doesn't feel like it. It feels like it's 60 minutes. That thing moves. There's 
not a minute wasted. And I think it handles just about every detail perfectly. So I've made my top three. I'm crossing off Star Trek for the voyage home. The three films that have survived elimination are Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the 2009 J.J. Abrams Star Trek, and Galaxy Quest. I'm perfectly fine. I'm perfectly happy with both Wrath of Khan and Galaxy Quest. I do feel a twinge of guilt for choosing the reboot over Undiscovered Country or The Voyage Home. I'm kind of waffling, to be honest, because if I did eliminate the reboot, I would probably pick Undiscovered Country just because I like that one so much more. And The Voyage Home, again, crowd pleaser to the max. It's such an enjoyable film. For just about anybody, just about anybody could watch The Voyage Home, even though it's the fourth film in a franchise. It doesn't matter if they've watched the series or the other movies. Just about anyone could probably watch for and enjoy it. Uh, but I like part six so much. Oh, man, that's tough. You know what I think? Ah, yeah, I got to change my mind, man. You know, when we get to the American Film Institute's list of 100 best movies ever made, this is going to get a lot tougher. <laughs> um but for this, yeah, I gotta go back. I, you know what? I'm goodbye, J.J. Abrams. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna save Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. Four is good, it is, but I love the pure Star Trek ness of Part Six. I love the use of the cast in that movie. It's a great swan song. I think you could watch two and then six without really needing the other films as far as storyline or character development. And of course, knowing those details. And having that connection to those characters is always better. But I think you could watch either one of those without the existence of the other films. And Galaxy Quest is just great comedy. And so, the three films playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and Galaxy Quest. Alright, that wraps it up for today. Let us know what you would have picked on Twitter at VWestCinemas. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash valleywestcinemas. And of course, we would very much appreciate if you would rate and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Those ratings are so incredibly helpful to the show. I'm your host, Aaron, and I'll see you at the movies.